0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author Helena Dia Bala. Uh, her new book is Craigslist Confessional, a collection of secrets from anonymous strangers. Catharsis and Hope, a much needed release and a feeling so many of us strive for during, strive for during periods of personal and communal hardship. Catharsis and hope are just what Helena Dea Bala has brought to the hundreds of people who have confided in her anonymously through her ad on Craigslist. She spent five years documenting people's secrets through Craigslist Confessional, a personal project which, after two years, became a compulsively readable quartz column. Her book, is a series of raw, urgent, and heartfelt stories that offer a look behind the curtain of our perfectly curated lives and challenge us to treat the strangers among us with empathy and respect. She tackles wide-ranging topics from divorce and grief to the marginalized experiences of undocumented immigrants, the formerly incarcerated, survivors of sexual violence, and others facing cultural stigma. She's written for the Washington Post and Vogue Magazine. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Elena.
1: It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me on, Catherine.
0: What I've never quite heard or read about a project like this Craigslist confessional it's such a great idea first question how when did you decide how and why did you decide to, to get this or to interview these people for this collection of their seek from secret strangers I should say anonymous strangers
1: so um, you you mentioned that um, some of the topics that are covered inside the book are um, the stories of marginalized immigrants, and I am an immigrant Uh, myself. I came to this country on political asylum when I was 12 years old. And uh, even though I tried to fit in and uh, do my best to kind of blend in with the crowd um, at that age, which is so delicate for teenagers, you know, almost on that verge of becoming a teenager, it was a difficult uh, transition. And I think I was an outsider for quite a long time, kind of looking in and, and seeing how other people um, that surrounded me didn't really reflect who I was. And I think that feeling probably stayed with me all through college and then later through law school and through my first job. And that disconnect was so strong and powerful within me that um, I kept looking, again, uh, going back to that uh, action of looking to others to see a little bit of yourself, to connect in a way that is a little bit deeper, a little bit more meaningful than just, oh, we're friends on Facebook or on Instagram or I follow you on Twitter. Um, And... I was having a lot of trouble finding that genuine connection and, um, on the road to my lobbying job uh, every morning, I would get out of the Metro Center stop in Washington, D.C., walk one block towards the White House, and you I'd see, you know, four or five homeless people who lived on those streets every day, rain or shine, and I ended up kind of creating a, a relationship with one of them, Joe, who stood right in front of my building, and um One day I stopped and we had a conversation um, that was unlike one that I've ever had with anyone before in that it felt very raw and honest and open uh, with this complete stranger on the street just asking him about his life and how he'd ended up there and uh, what he did when the weather got bad and where he got food from and um, things that I'd wondered about him and I'd wanted to see in him for for a long time. And then... In a very kind of easy quid pro quo, uh, the conversation turned to me and I shared some things that I, you know, never told anyone before. And I left feeling almost imperceptibly different and lighter. And after reflecting on that conversation and why it had been so impactful for me, um, I felt thought of this idea of creating that space of confession uh for other people and uh that's when the idea of posting that ad on Craigslist came from of um, and and the subject line said tell me about yourself and I offered to listen anonymously and for free uh to anything that people had to share that didn't that they didn't feel they could share with anyone else in their lives
0: um, you know, it's so interesting. Again, you it's, took this non-conventional, obviously a very non-conventional approach. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, here you are. You're a lobbyist. You're a lawyer. You didn't decide mm-hmm. to go back and get a PhD in psychology or an MD right. in psychiatry. You decided to take this route, which very few people, or if any, have, have done before, I guess. I mean, I think this is so unique, right? Um, did What did you expect? I mean, when you did this, did you think you were going to get a lot of uh, responses? I did
1: not, um, you know, because like you said, it is very unconventional and I didn't know if this was going to resonate. I didn't know if this had been just an experience that was singular to me, which I thought, you know, it could possibly very well have been, or if it was something that was going to resonate with the people who are reading the ad. And so I posted it and I immediately kind of almost set it away from from my brain and my thoughts and thought, okay, probably nothing will come of this. And then I checked my emails the next morning and it was, tons of responses I don't want to quantify because I'm not exactly sure I wasn't counting but I just you know a whole front page of my email was just people responding to it and again it being Craigslist I thought well this is probably just going to be people you know saying weird things but I went through and read all of them and these are very legitimate responses to an ad about you know burdens that people were carrying and wanting to share them with somebody else. And I realized, not immediately, not that first day, but after I'd been doing this for a couple of months and working my lobbying job, that I had struck a nerve, that I was definitely sitting on something that was a little bit bigger than I could understand at the moment and that I had uh, almost an obligation to myself and to the people who seeming were seeming to need something like this to carry it through and see if there was something beyond just, you know an ad on
0: craigslist well when they're telling you their stories and you call them heartfelt and urgent and a lot of obviously different kinds of stories and a lot of people who may be Mm -hmm. needy did you ever feel like you had a responsibility or did you get in a position where you had a i'm a social worker so that's why i'm asking the question like that you had to refer them to somebody else or that they were in trouble or suicidal or all the kinds of things that i guess i would worry about when i did that project Mm -hmm. which is yeah so i
1: i'm i'm very grateful that I didn't have uh, um, any occurrences where I felt that there was something that I couldn't immediately offer to somebody uh, or felt kind of out of my depth. But I did think of the eventuality of that perhaps happening. And so I had a friend of mine who is a psychiatrist, I explained to him what I was doing. And I said, you know, Peter, if this If anything happens and I feel unprepared or I need to refer somebody urgently to you, would you be willing to talk to them? Um, And he agreed to do so. Um, There, I haven't had conversations and people have asked for my opinion or for my help. um, And I disclosed both in the ad and before each conversation that I am not a mental health professional and I cannot offer mental health help, but... I am strictly a listener. Um, if there is again, I have the contingency plan of if there is something that somebody asks actively to be referred to uh, somebody that can help them on a more regular basis in a more structured way, then I have that you know backup of being able to refer them to resources that they can use uh, if that's something that they choose to do. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, your topics range from the right the whole gamut from. Uh, you- Undocument, undocumented immigrants, people who have been incarcerated, mm-hmm. survivors of sexual violence, mm-hmm. on and on, divorce. And I guess there's a whole a, a sea of people out there who just need to talk and don't necessarily need any or want anyone to necessarily do something about it. Or, yeah, as I said, you know, they just need someone to listen to them who is not mm-hmm. connected to them. Um, what was the, I guess... What would you, or maybe you can name several of the stories perhaps that, you know, resonated with you the most or maybe were the most difficult to hear or touched on a lot of your own issues? I don't know if that's one question or several.
1: (laughs) That's, I think maybe several, but I, I. It's. It's a very. I was good, about to say a very good question because I think it gets to the heart of uh, what's the difference between just listening versus therapy. And I think that I've made. I've never made any claims to provide therapy for anyone. I think it's a very important distinction between what I do and what you do. Um, and I think that you know, muddying those waters or blurring that does nobody any service. But like you said, I think there is something to be pointed out here, which is that some people just need that listening session, right, to be able to vent, to be able to unload and say what they need to say and not have to your feedback or feel that there's an expectation to maybe get better or take uh, steps in the future to just leave it at, Hey, I just want to get this off my chest. Is that okay? Are you willing to listen while I do that? And I felt that way myself plenty of times where I'm just mulling over an issue in my head. I keep thinking it over and over. And I say, you know what, let me share it with Alex, my husband. Let me tell Alex what I think. And so I'll say, Oh, this is what, you know, I'm going through. And he said, well, you know, you should do this or the way I would look at it is this way. Or, you know, I know somebody who went through something like this and this is what they did. And it's, you get so disgruntled sometimes because it's not what I need. You know, I, yeah. I love that you want to help, but I just kind of want to work it out on my own. I want to be able to verbalize it and get there myself and just get that distance that I have from saying something out loud and creating that narrative for my own life. And it's never somebody that, you know, comes and wants to share, oh, I had a bad day today. You know, these are much, much deeper than that. So it's not these trivial venting sessions about, oh, a colleague at work isn't very nice. It's much more root issues that we all deal with as people uh, at some point in our lives.
0: Well, I'm thinking you're talking about your husband. I don't want to leave, uh, uh, Alex, your husband. I mean, he Mm -hmm. has a stake in it. He loves you. So, yes, he wants to help Mm -hmm. you. And it's difficult to have just listen, as you say. And I think it's true, yeah, Yeah. with all our, whether it's your mother, your sister, your husband, or a best friend. Mm -hmm. So the anonymity is really, really important. Yeah, it really is. I can see that. Yeah. But I interrupted you. Go on. What were were you going to say?
1: it is the heart, it is, I think in many ways, the heart of this is that the anonymity makes it possible to not have that ongoing relationship with somebody and to not create the expectations or the fears that come with that of I have to live up to a certain expectation that this person might have of me or I can't really show myself the way that I truly am because I'm afraid of that judgment because now I have a relationship with this person and I might see them at my kid's school tomorrow or something of that sort, right? But when it's anonymous, it's very much so stripped of those other um, those other fears that come along with sharing something so deep and so personal with people with whom we have relationships, and it also comes with like you said, not that person, my stake in this is not really in changing that person's life or wanting to affect it. My stake is in just creating that space where they can feel safe in sharing what they need to share and letting that be the transformation itself, not forcing it, not making it part of my own narrative, not piggybacking, saying, Oh yeah, totally me too. I get it. But just leaving the, the spotlight on that person and saying, this is your time and you can use it however you'd like and I'm here to listen for as long as you need it. And it's not timed. And like I said before, it's entirely free. So I don't charge and it, I don't say, hey, I, I've got, you know, 45 minutes for you and then I have to go. Um, it's in, back before I had my son, when it was much more possible to do something like that, I had very long kind of open-ended meetings with people uh, where I just listen for, you know, a couple of hours, uh, two to three hours at a time on average.
0: I'm thinking in the age of COVID. Now, uh, this is, would be something that would be um, a very, uh, I guess, welcome kind of relationship. Being able to do this and to talk to someone anonymously, you know, like you've done, because you're you're people who are semi or self quarantined with their partner, their spouse, or whoever. Um, they need. It would seem to me this would be such a good way to kind of get out all that negative energy and all the stuff that's brewing mm-hmm. and, and not having to talk directly to the person that you're living with 24-7, it, it, it sounds like mm-hmm. a, a really sort of a, a good experience or, or one that um, would be very helpful mm-hmm. to many of us now.
1: It feels like it would not be necessarily a mental break because you're delving into things that a lot of people don't want to deal with and want to avoid, but I think it's actually the opposite. You know, when we're in in quarantine and with somebody 24-7 and we can't really go outside and there's so much fear and stress and everybody's a little bit on edge, you know, seldom do you ever get that chance to just step back from it, take a distance from, from life that seems to be happening at lightning fast speed all around you and just live with your thoughts and be with them and, and, and parse through them and see what's happening and just kind of maybe crystallize them a little bit. And a, a situation where you get to talk to anonymous listener like this, I think that's exactly what that might provide for some people is that ability to take that distance, take that time for themselves. Um, and, and just kind of, Help to arrange their thoughts in a way that's a little bit more makes a little bit more sense and provides a little bit of catharsis and distance from whatever it is that they're dealing with. And so, I was not surprised when I started getting, once COVID started and and when it peaked, I started getting a lot more responses, a lot more requests um, to talk. And so, I am still catching up on those. But the fact that it peaked during COVID makes complete sense to me, because I think everybody is a little bit on edge and is feeling a little bit disconnected. And there's, you know, we're going from one thing to another to another. And 2020 has just been a a punishing year for everyone, for all of us. Um, So it's just, it's a good opportunity to kind of step back and and do a bit of a a rendering of the year and and have some time to, to figure out, you know, where to go from here.
0: Can you share a couple of the stories with us? Uh,
1: A couple of the stories that I've heard that are in the book or just stories from
0: from COVID? A couple in the book, obvious, you know, and just sort of give Mm -hmm. us a taste for what is in the book. And, um, yeah, share some that stand out for you.
1: Of course. Um, So there's what I thought when when COVID started was immediately my mind went to, um, I wonder what happens to people who are in abusive relationships during uh, during isolation and quarantine. Um, and there's a story that is in the book uh, from Jane, and she is, unfortunately, uh, her husband is very physically, uh, emotionally, and mentally abusive towards her. Um, so if you'd like, I could read you a passage from Jane, would that be okay? Yeah, that would be great. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, it'll give you a very quick taste of, um, of what her voice is and what her story is. So here is Jane, who is in her 30s. And she says, my husband and I have been together for almost a decade. And we have one son. We met through mutual friends. He is successful, charming, and very well-liked in our circle. I would say that his guy friends almost look up to him, so much so that I'm often told that I'm lucky to have found him. From the look of things, he has the perfect life and perfect family. The thing that nobody knows about our perfect family is that my husband is a monster. He's extremely verbally abusive toward me and on occasion, our son. He has never been physically abusive, which I think is why I've put up with it. I used to be clueless as to what would send him into a tailspin, but I'd become better at understanding his triggers. Sometimes he wakes up in a mood and I can tell he's just waiting for the slightest bit of provocation to unleash on me. Other times it's something I might say or do that upsets him. He gets quiet and brooding and secludes himself. For instance, if the three of us are spending time together and something happens, he'll just go and shut himself in our bedroom without explanation. It could be hours or minutes later that he comes out and starts screaming at me. So this is Jane and um, her story is of, of being with someone this husband that she has um, has described in this passage and um, and learning the the tempo of his abuse learning to um, to time it to understand when it's coming and it's walking on perpetual eggshells and uh, feeling afraid and 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 struggling with the impotence, the inability to um, to get away from that, A, but also the fact that nobody, none of her friends, none of her family, none of their mutual people that they all know seems to see through this guy to what he really is. And he's just managed to charm all of them and they're all in love and they idolize him and she can see beyond that to what he really is and she feels... Um, that, you know, and she feels gaslighted by his persona because he also manages to somehow charm her into believing that he is uh, perfectly right about being upset. So it's the seesaw of being with somebody who is very verbally abusive and emotionally abusive
0: towards her. She describes it as you describe it, the tempo, as you just said, the tempo of his abuse. I mean, just in that uh-huh. uh, small pa- that short passage that you read, you can understand that. And the temptation would be, I, you have to do something about this, you know, to, trying yeah. to get you out of the situation or make sure somebody knows about it or, you know, on and on. But yeah. that's, yeah. yeah.
1: But, you know, so Jane is, 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 has a very good job. She is very well employed. She is an extremely educated person telling her, hey, you need to get out of this situation and I can put you in touch with people who can help you. Um to me that feels like almost insulting her. She knows this. Mm-hmm. She knows that there are people who can help her. She knows that there are outlets. She knows why is she picking an anonymous person on Craigslist to tell this story to? Is what I come back to is because she wants somebody to see what's happening and she's hoping that she will be ready at some point to take that step herself. But I don't know if it's my place and it certainly isn't. I don't feel that it's my place to push beyond that role as a listener and to say, "Um, I think you should leave him because she knows she should leave him. She says that much in her story. Um, She just needs to get to a place where she is ready to do it and, and pushing her and imposing again, my own narrative saying, well, this and that, and this is my opinion that does nothing but hijack her story and all she wants is for somebody to see what's happening in her life, to witness the fact that she's married to this guy was awful. And he has everybody fooled into believing that he's not, that he's this great person. She wants somebody to see that duplicity.
0: Well, I think the boy, besides I, you know, herself, she, obviously besides <laughs> herself, and she can say it. And sometimes the more, you know, the more you say it, as you say, cognitively, she knows that there's help out there and there are people she could go to and all of those kinds of things. But emotionally, mm-hmm. The more you say it, it's like writing it down. It becomes realer and it becomes more real, I think, in an emotional way. And then you decide what you want to do or or not do, um, which is... I think that's the role
1: of this conversation is that she's... Instead of writing it down, she's verbalizing it. She's taking that distance and she's saying, wow, this is actually happening. And you know probably better than anyone the transformative effect that it can have, not to just think something in your head, but to voice it, to give it voice. To, once you hear those words coming back at you, they become realer somehow. Real. You, you, you hear yourself and you breathe in after you've just said that and you say, wow, Okay. I I just said that that's real. That's my reality. And I've just owned up to it. So what now? And that what now moment I think is what is transformative to, to a lot of the people that share their stories and their narratives is that they've just said something and it feels like maybe it having been heard by someone else, having been seen by someone else makes it much realer, makes their, their reality just accepted, um, and I hope that that's what happened uh, for, for Jane, but, you know, pushing her and telling her that there are places she could go and people she could see who could help her. She knew that uh, there yeah. would have been no utility. And, and, and again, you know, replaying that, that narrative to her. Yeah. So well, she
0: can go online and look up all the resources that, that yeah. are available. Yeah. That's, you know, it, it's there of and course. she's intelligent and she has all the, uh, you know, she can do that. Okay. That's Jane's story. Yeah. Tell tell us mm-hmm. another story. Okay,
1: <laughs> okay, uh, I love it. Um, okay, so let's talk about let's talk about Frank. Uh, Frank is the oldest person that I've met through Craigslist Confessional. Uh, he was in his eighties when I met him, and he is such a lovely figure uh, in that he had a, an old world charm and demeanor to him. And he kind of walked a little bit hunched over and he didn't want to use a cane. It was a pride thing for him, although he had told me he had tripped uh, a few months before I met him. And he kind of shuffled when he walked to avoid lifting his foot up and tripping. Um, So he explained all of this to me when I first met him. And the physicality of him is so powerful to me. And unfortunately, something that I don't get to uh, imbue in these stories is how some people that I've met with look and and how that informs uh, their stories and their perception um, and my perception of them. But here's Frank in his own words. Joyce was diagnosed with Alzheimer's a couple of years ago. Joyce is his wife of over 50 years. I first started noticing that something was off because she was becoming uncharacteristically short-tempered with me. She started forgetting where her things were, like her car keys, and she started misplacing things altogether. I remember once she had put the laundry detergent in the fridge. I spent hours trying to find it. When she started showing these first signs, I lost my patience with her. I couldn't understand why she couldn't find her car keys all the time, or why she would say unintelligible nonsense. I yelled at her once, and I think I frightened her. I didn't know she was ill. Now that she's not there, I feel like I wasted her only chance to enjoy our last few days together." So Frank and and his children had decided to, to put Joyce in an assisted living facility. And, um, when I met with him, it was very fresh. I think it probably been a little bit less than a month since they had been apart and he was really struggling with being alone and he needed, um, somebody to talk to and somebody to understand what he was going through and the guilt that he felt over, um, having put her away, as he often said, uh, was very hard to manage. And um, his last words in the story is, and so it is, uh, sometimes my wife doesn't know who I am. She's dead and alive, and it's killing me. But sometimes she looks at me with the love we had ma- many moons ago when we sat together on a park bench in Vienna. She knew my name and loved me in spite of myself. And in those moments, I'm glad to have that glimmer of her. So there is Frank. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's Frank. That's quite a story. We have to say goodbye. We and I think that's a really good story, obviously, to to end on and to think about. And this is quite a book. This is really a great book, um, Craigslist Confessional: A Collection of Secrets from Anonymous Strangers. And we've been talking to Helena Diabala, who wrote the book. Um, I recommend I recommend it for everyone. You can buy it online bookstores. I guess you can buy it at bookstores everywhere online, right? Um, yes. Yeah, and and thank Helena, you give so us, much, Catherine. Thank you so much. Great, it was a really, really great interview. Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show.